1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Tell Me This. I am your host Carrie Borkowski and this is episode 8 setting the stage a theatrical look at learning. In this podcast, I usually spend lots of time talking about all things related to belonging, our own self-perception of belonging, cultivating and building belonging for our students, our friends, our families and our neighbors. We I do this work by sharing stories, personal stories, some professional stories. I also try to bring in some literature to support the work that I'm doing and just to give you another perspective on the topic at hand. And I also spend some time pondering questions that have come up for me during the week, questions that I started to reflect on after doing a previous podcast, or honestly, sometimes I just have something on my mind that I think might be worth sharing. So in today's episode, I will, of course, uh, share a story about my grandmother, how she built a learning culture in our family. I'm really excited because in today's podcast I will also share an interview that I did with my first guest um, which is really cool and I'll also talk about uh, what I think is a really interesting article about something called learning circles and how we can think about this approach, these learning circles, as a potential way to intervene and really set that stage um, in all kinds of professional contexts. And then I will try to wrap up, as I always do, with some final thoughts. So today, as you listen to the podcast, and as you hear the stories and the interviews and the research, I wanted you to ponder a few questions. Um, The first is, What does pre-work look like in other professional contexts? So if you remember or listened to episode seven, I started talking about this idea of pre-work and really setting the stage. And what do I mean by that? Well, I'm using this term because I haven't been able to find any other sort of language around this. So the idea is that we have to start setting or building a climate, um, feelings Uh, whether it's the look of the classroom, the look of the meeting space, but also the feeling of that meeting space before we can even begin some of what arguably is hard work around belonging. Now, granted, as you'll as you'll hear in the interview with Lisa Mitchell, some of this work is is quite obvious and easy, but some of the conversations which follow, Um, once you've started to build that belonging, can be difficult and challenging. And so doing the pre-work both in the space with the group, but also on your own is critical. So just think about what pre-work might look like in the different contexts in which you find yourself. Another question I'd love for you to think about is, how is it valued and why is it important I mean, you'll hear from Lisa that she and her team spend a considerable amount of time on this pre-work and arguably other teachers, leaders, facilitators do the same thing. And I know from reading the research and hearing teachers and knowing my own experiences that time almost always is the number one reason we aren't able to do this and other kinds of work. And so it always, for me, comes back to why is it important to be thinking about this and doing this work in the space if we only have a limited amount of time and then finally i'd love for you to think about this idea of learning circles and what this might have this intervention may have in terms of implications for your own practice can you think of a way as you learn about this this intervention can you think of a way to implement it in some way shape or form in your own space for folks that I don't know that coach teams that um, lead um, participants through an exercise regimen, teach in classes, lead a community group, um, sing in a choir with a group. Whatever it is that you do that you think um, might benefit from cultivating belonging, is there a place for something like a learning circle or something that that um, resembles a learning circle? So we'll think about the pre-work its value, why we think why I think it's important, and then specifically talk about one intervention that has some demonstrated evidence that it does lead to cultivating belonging, and that is learning circle. So when I come back, I will share a quick story about my family and how my grandmother tried and did successfully set this set the stage for all of us. And then I'll get into the interview with uh, Lisa Mitchell. Thanks so much for joining. As I said, this is Tell Me This. I'm your host, Carrie Borkowski, and we are at episode eight Setting the Stage A Theatrical Look at Learning. And I'll be right back. Thanks. All right. Welcome back to Tell Me This in Episode 8. As I said, today I'm going to talk about this idea of pre-work and what it looks like in a different professional context, why and how it might be valued, and one example of cultivating this belonging and doing this pre-work around something called a learning circle. Before we get to the interview with Lisa Mitchell, I did want to share a quick story with you. So... um, You know, educators, leaders, and others will say that doing this work is hard, takes too much time, detracts from the learning that needs to happen in our classrooms. And I think Lisa would agree um, in her experience and her read of the literature that she sees this. And I'm here to suggest that doing this upfront work is paramount to high quality, authentic and deep learning for our students and us. And really, when I say students, again, I'm really trying to emphasize that I'm not just talking about classroom learning. You could be students in lots of contexts, so just keep that in mind. So when the learning, the moments, and the topics can be hard, these learning cultures and our perceptions of belonging and and the belonging feelings in the space become even more important. So my story for today, to no one's surprise if you've been listening to my podcast, is about my grandmother. Now, as I said in probably the first or a very early podcast. Um, if if I could sit and have a conversation with her today and boy, believe me when I say this, that I would love to be able to talk to her about this stuff now. Um, she would sort of probably shrug off this idea that she was a teacher. She would hear me out because that's just how, how, she, how she was. Um, but she was a very modest woman. And so I don't think she would recognize the influence and the contribution she's had on mine and my family and really anybody that she would bump into in the world. So, so she was, she would not call herself a teacher and she wasn't trained as a teacher, but she, as I've said also before, she was definitely one of my very first teachers. And I'm confident that other folks in my family, if I asked them would say the same thing. So when I think about my par- my grandparents, I have a lot of amazing memories and many of them naturally center around family events, gatherings and celebrations. We had we have a huge family. My grandparents have um had 4 kids, so my mom, her two sisters and a brother, and then you can imagine that um each of them started having kids and they each family had at least 2, sometimes 3 kids and then we've all started having family, you know, kids. So when we all come together, you know, it's, it's one of those things where when you start to make a guest list, my family always took up, you know, at least half the guest list. So so it was it was big. Um, sometimes these get togethers were big milestones. So lots of birthdays, anniversaries, graduations, new jobs, births, you name it. And honestly, sometimes like every family or every community, um, they were just get-togethers. So it was a beautiful day. So we would head to my grandparents' house for a dip in the river, a boat ride, to go crabbing. Remember the story I told about sitting on our bellies on their pier trying to to grab some crabs to eat for lunch? Or, honestly, one of my favorite pastimes was just to hang out on their porch and watch the water. My grandparents had this amazing old-school, like, back area to their house. So they had a deck and under the deck, of course, was the open area with some some sort of chairs that you could sit there. But then, attached to the other part of the house was one of those again old school screened-in porches with the like the handle that you had to circularly wind, and it would open the really tiny window, and it would let in the the breeze of the river. And my grandparents also had um, a chaise lounge chair in the in the por- in the porch, so it was one of those indoor, outdoor pieces of furniture and you could rock back and forth. So I remember sitting there many, many days, afternoons or mornings with my grandmother um, just sitting on that great porch. So so we'd sit, watch the water and oh, do I miss those afternoons. I bring all of this up because while we probably had a, a sort of a, a leg up in, in terms of setting the stage because we already knew each other as a family I always felt like my grandparents and, and the other adults that were, who were there were really good at settling the, setting the stage and modeling what it meant to create a culture of welcoming, of love, of openness, and general fun. Now, again, this might seem easy in a family setting because there's a history, there's some understanding and background. But remember, family dynamics mm, can be messy. They're complicated. And let's be honest here. We are we are a family, but as we go out into the world, we are all different in our views, our experiences, our pre- preferences, our professions, you name it, that list goes on and on. So even in these family settings, it does take a little work and intentional action to set the stage and create a welcoming climate. So what is the work? Well, When I think about my grandmother as an instructor, a facilitator, a mentor, or a guide, I can totally see her in action. Big smile on her face, ears up, paying attention to whomever walks in the door or comes around the corner to her porch. This welcoming sentiment, her body language was always open and ready to hear what you had to share about your week and the verbal cues. Remember, tell me this. I also remember her reaching out and grabbing a shoulder, giving a hug or when needed, um, you know, introducing herself to a new face. Now, engagement at this point will clearly depend on the crowd. So I'm not advocating that you always reach out and give someone a big hug. You definitely have to be able to read, read the audience, but certainly some sort of handshake, some sort of welcoming gesture would be appropriate in most settings. I was sitting with a friend last night. We were just catching up and having coffee and talking about this very topic of sort of setting the stage with little kids. And my friend, who's an, who's been an educator for a while, said, you know, just the simple act of greeting a young person, getting down at their level, looking at them eye to eye and saying, good morning, and then saying their name. I'm so glad you could join us today. That that's so easy, but so and so powerful. Kids, adults, anyone. I mean, think about how you've responded when somebody remembers your name and they've thanked you or expressed some gratitude for you being there today. I can also remember her bringing others into the fold of a conversation, getting me up to speed on Grandpa's latest round of golf, sharing a success related to one of my cousins or their kids reminding me that someone's birthday or new job is just around the corner. This act of inclusion and making sure others had a place, had a contribution, had value and a role in this space is also so critical to this pre-work. Now, we did not formally establish group goals or sign a paper for the planned collaboration for the duration of the event, but my grandmother in her wisdom over time, had subtly laid the groundwork with her quips about being kind to others, listening first, introducing ourselves, and just in her general behavior. So we kind of had an idea of the rules or the pre-work, the setting of the stage that would result in this kind of climate in most of the settings. The result? Well, even in a large family group who did not see each other all too regularly as we have scattered around geographically. And even with our varying jobs, professions, families, experiences, interests, and views, we seem to come together like clockwork, engaging, interesting, kind, loving, and to be honest, we just have fun. Now, I gotta say, it is definitely easy to do this work and to respond to this work when it's easy, right? It's easy when it's easy. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, think about what I just described, you know, a celebration of sorts. Well, that's usually a pretty joyous occasion. Or if it's a beautiful day, who wouldn't want to hang out by the water, sit on a pier, go for a swim or go for a boat ride, right? So if it's the 4th of July, celebrating somebody's birthday or graduation. But doing this work in the easy times is critical because. Now it's laid the groundwork and set the stage for the tough times. So when my grandfather a few years ago needed hospice and almost two years later, the same care was needed for my grandmother, what happened in our family? My grandparents weren't there to facilitate or to instruct or guide or mentor or reach a handout or be the smiling face. Well, my grandmother had set the stage for us. We knew what to do. We did not need to look at our group contract. We did not need a reminder or a kick in the pants. We had the downy way in our hearts and our minds. That groundwork and that climate for learning, doing and being together had already been established. We had practiced, we had been told, we had shared, we had practiced and had been established. It takes time and practice and mistakes and, you know, saying you're star- sorry and, and wiping yourself off and getting back up, the learning, the relearning, and a willingness to change to do this hard work of setting the stage and creating welcoming climates. But when the conversations get difficult, when the topics are complicated, and when the circumstances are just unbearable, we can also take comfort that any discomfort we are feeling, saying, and sharing will be well-received in these learning environments. Now, I know that story was a little dramatic, and it was maybe difficult to swallow, but now think about these ideas in your classes. It doesn't have to be around death, necessarily, but just think about the difficult conversations you might have in your classes. The the arguments that might ensue during a meeting, a disagreement that might emerge in the spaces you enter, conflict, the competition. Isn't it worth the time and effort it takes to establish these learning cultures? When it is easy and everyone is on board, it can be so fun and easy. And when it's hard and challenging, you and your students looking back and really probably while you're going through the work, will be so grateful you invested early for just these moments. Tell me this, how are you setting the stage for your students, your neighbors, your friends, your community, your coworkers, and your colleagues? What could you do today to contribute to a learning culture? When we come back, I'm super excited to have Lisa Mitchell on to talk to us about her work in setting the stage. So thanks for listening. And let's see. Great. All right. So thanks for sticking around, everyone. As I mentioned in my story, my grandmother was really good at setting the stage, building, directing, and bossing us around, basically. Her ability to do this sort of setting the stage work, unbeknownst to us, had lasting effects that I might imagine many of us have carried into other spaces. And so today I'm super excited to talk with Lisa Mitchell, who knows a lot about setting stages, literally actually. We're gonna talk about her work as an arts education administrator, it's a mouthful on Broadway, and her efforts to build theater programs in under-resourced schools. So Lisa, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah,
1: absolutely. You're you're my first, so i I told you before we started. I'm a little nervous, but uh, I think we'll I think we'll manage. Um, I'll, to- I'll go easy on you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so before we jump in um, to the topic, you know, for today, I was hoping maybe you could just share really briefly what it means to be a. Arts education administrator serving under-resourced schools. That's a that's a mouthful. So, <laughs> sure, for
3: sure. Yeah. it is a
2: long it is a long title. Yeah.
1: So essentially, um,
2: my work is for a theater company, right? So I work for the folks who produce shows themselves,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, my work is to extend the work of that company into public school environments and other school environments as well. But my passion and focus is on under-resourced public schools. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a funny thing in arts education because unlike other content areas that are taught in schools, typically by certified teachers, that is true in the case of the arts. There are certified teachers. Um, Most of them are visual art teachers, Mm -hmm. um, then music teachers, Mm -hmm. and then then theater teachers and then the bottom of the pile are dance teachers, and different states have different certifications. But because of the sort of tumultuous history of arts education, there's this been this phenomenon of cultural organizations, like in my case a theater company, but also museums or symphonies going into schools to supplement or sometimes provide the core arts education of the students. Got it. So because of that, you'll see in cultural organizations, education departments. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of the world in which I operate is working it. in an education department for a cultural organization. In my case, a theater to provide services in schools.
1: Cool. So have you always entered this space from like a theater company to the school, or were you ever on the other side, recognizing the need for this? Like sort of, how did you get where you are?
2: Yeah. So my dad friend is in theater. So okay. I went to undergrad as a theater major. I focused in directing.
3: Okay.
2: Um, when I graduated from undergrad and was going to move to New York to continue my theater education, I worked um, in the town that I grew up in as a teaching artist, which okay. is an arts educator who um, who works with young people either oh. in a school environment or in a um, cultural organization environment. So I. I taught kids that summer and I realized, oh my gosh, this is it. This is the thing that I'm supposed to do, right? Sweet. Um, so I brought that experience with me and, um, and started working in the theater in New York. I started my own independent theater company in New York City with some other women. And ultimately um, started working at my current organization and really all this time really wanting to focus on this idea of the intersection of not just theater, but theater and education. Cool. So um, some opportunities came up and I was able to help shape The education department
1: where I currently am. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, and speaking of intersections, as I was, as I've been um, working on this podcast, um, I was sharing with you when we were prepping that I've been talking a lot about and hearing actually from the audience about this idea of sort of the pre-work around belonging, because as you know, the podcast is really, I guess, all things belonging, cultivating, creating it, creating these cultures, and so as I started to think about this, you know, pre-pre work. And then setting the stage sort of occurred to me. I was like, oh, I've got to talk to Lisa who like literally does this kind of work. So I think there's sort of another intersection, um, you know, right there for us. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So what I would love to do and I'm, what I'm hoping to do as I hopefully have other people who come on to be interviewed is I'd love to hear first um, just what is your sense of belonging? Like what does belonging mean to you and Maybe you know, as the methodologist, what does it look like? You know, how do you, how are you sort of describing it for us? Yeah,
2: that's a great question. I've been reflecting a lot on that, and uh, it's a big conversation in my field right now. I, I, I would say to me, belonging is being able to show up in an environment and be your full self, mm. and have your full self accepted, embraced, and, embrace and valued. Mm. Um, so it's different from being included. Mm-hmm. I think being included is a precursor to belonging. Sure. Um, but belonging is the capacity to be exactly who you are and for that to contribute mm-hmm. to whether that is in a
1: classroom or
2: putting on a show. That's
1: right. <laughs> nice. So I wonder, you know, I always as a as a non, I love the theater, but I've never really been a I would never call myself a theater person. I'm not, you know, that stage person. But I kind of have the sense that maybe belonging either is mandatory or is something that happens kind of naturally in theater. But I want to ask this question anyway, which is, have you ever had a moment where you didn't feel like you belonged and sort of Can you talk about, I'm hoping there's a success at the end of the story, right? So can you talk about sort of how you got through it or what happened to get you on the other side of that?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question because I think you're right. And and we can talk more about this in a bit. But I think theater is a sort of natural facilitator of belonging. Mm -hmm. And so for me, if I were to think about a time in my life where I didn't feel as I belonged, I think like so many people growing up, I didn't, I didn't feel quite like I fit in, Mm -hmm. you know, in my elementary and middle school years specifically, which is of course, a very typical experience. But, um, you know, I struggled in school. I was a, te- I was a bad student. I was a terrible <laughs> student. And, um, it's hilarious that I'm pursuing an edb on topics of Johns right yeah. now because if you would have told middle school me that all of my teachers would have laughed at you. <laughs> and, um, and for that and so many other reasons, I never quite felt like I belonged hmm. and I'll never forget one day over the summer, a friend of mine, said, hey, can you help me memorize my lines for uh, a play that I'm doing at this theater academy downtown? And I was like, yeah. You know, knowing roughly what a play was, but she handed me a script and I I read the part across from her and I was instantly hooked. Mm. And I begged my parents to enroll me in that same theater program. And that summer changed the course of my life. Uh. You know, just going to uh, a space where other young people had a shared interest Mm -hmm. and where I was successful at the goal, um, which was creative expression and storytelling Mm -hmm. and reflecting back on how I came into my current role. That was the theater Academy that I went and was a teaching artisan that made me realize what I'm supposed (laughs) to do is not just theater. It's theater for young people. Mm -hmm. It's theater with young people. Right. So for me, that moment of a friend asking me, Hey, can you help me with this change, change the trajectory of what I do professionally.
1: I just, I mean, it's so powerful and I just, I really thank you for sharing your story. And I just, you know, part of the reason I'm doing this podcast is because I'm convinced that everybody has a story like that. It's probably, it's probably not about theater or, but it's, it's that moment where either they're struggling in school because they don't fit in or they're already struggling in school. And so as a result of that, they don't fit in, right. There's sort of that bi-directional piece. Yep. 100%. Um, And then I love to hear about, because I almost can feel in my bones as well, that moment where you're like, I have found sort of what's in my core, right? And it's like that, yeah. it like flips a switch almost. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And to
2: be in a space where other people are finding it too. And I think that's what's kind of special about that like summer learning or extracurricular learning thing is you're opting into it yeah. and you're opting into it with a group of people who also opted into it. Totally. And there's, there's something that's, I mean, that's, that's probably the first time in your life when you have those opportunities that you experience your own interest
1: and agency. Mm, right? Yeah, that's yeah. I'm, I can almost get goosebumps. It's really cool. Um, so you know, as as we as I think we're both sort of agreeing, if the, certainly the theater, perhaps for lots of reasons that we we may touch on today, seems to be a natural place to cultivate belonging. Um, it seems to attract people that are, you know, open and and, and valuing differences generally. Um, but but having said that, given especially the work that you do with kids who maybe aren't naturally theater kids, right, I'm wondering if this idea of pre-work um, and setting the stage is relevant to what you do. And I would love if it is to sort of just hear you talk about some of the things you do to to get people, because I, I mean, I'll be honest. I've only been on stage a few times, and it's a pretty scary thing to like put yourself out there. So I'm just wondering what kind of pre work you might do with your your students.
2: Absolutely, no. It's a, it is an essential ingredient, I think, to any creative process, but especially a live performance, in which, to your point, you're very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. You're you are all the attention is on you, and you're on that stage, <laughs> and all eyes are on you. It's a very vulnerable experience, and it can't be successful or frankly good mm-hmm. if you're if you're in your head about it, right? Mm-hmm. So um I think that pre-work that that you're calling it is is vital. And in theater education specifically, and I would say theater more broadly, this idea of ensemble mm. is essential to storytelling. Um, so so what I mean by that is, you know, when you're producing a show in a school environment or in any environment, Um, it takes a group of people to tell the story with the exception of like a one person show, which is not super common. Um, it takes a group of people Mm -hmm. to, to work together to tell the story. And those are people that are on stage, the performers, but they're also people off stage, Mm -hmm. the directors, the designers, et cetera. Right. And in order to effectively tell that story and and have a quality performance, they need to work together as a unit. They need Mm -hmm. to work together as a team and develop that sense of camaraderie and ensemble. So a lot of the process before you even jump into rehearsing the script and rehearsing the lines is focused on building that Mm -hmm. um, that trust, that collective style,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: um, and the voice of not just the individuals, but the group.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, If you think about a show uh, like, like The Lion King on Broadway, right? It's a story of, of Simba and Simba's journey to identify who he is. But if that was all you saw up there, it would be one person on the stage. Right. Instead, what you see are all of these actors transforming the environment into the grasslands, into mm-hmm. the savannah, etc. So the ensemble is essential. So how we do that, there are a couple of different ways. Um, in, in a lot of the practice that I do in school environments, we do that by um, dedicating significant amount of time to cultivating a sense of ensemble with students before we even begin, before we even hand them their scripts, (laughs) right? Um, And we like to begin uh, in our rehearsal process with uh, uh, ensemble agreements and essentially the facilitators in the room will ask of the students, but also ask of their collaborating teachers, mm. um, what What do we agree to for the next, you know, six months of this rehearsal process? What do we agree to do in this space together? Mm. We start by asking them, What's our goal? Well, our goal is to put on a show. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what's it going to take to put on a show? Well, I guess we need to practice that. Okay. So when do we practice? All right. Well, we're going to need to show up on time. We start pulling these ideas out of the young people and out of their collaborating adults. And we we make a big chart paper, a big piece of chart paper on the wall. And when we've all had a moment to review our agreements, every single person in that cast signs it. And that remains in the rehearsal space for the duration of the process. Mm. And the educators will often call back to that Mm -hmm. because – it holds a sense of responsibility and accountability mm-hmm. toward the kids, even as young as, you know, eight years old mm-hmm. to say, we got a goal here and we agreed that we're going to have fun doing this, but this is how we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. So that's one way. Yeah. we'll start to cultivate that sense of ensemble.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I, well, as I was, I mean, there's so much, I'm trying to think where to go with this cause there's so, so much to unpack there. But as you were talking, it's almost like, The ensemble is only as effective as the ensemble, right? It's like right, like the ability to to make that ensemble. It's almost like a verb, like have, like bringing a group of people together in a classroom or on a stage is fine, but like the way you sort of mix those ingredients matters probably as much, if not more. Hundred percent. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. The other thing that you mentioned. Um, at the beginning about these sort of one-person shows. I mean, I wonder, and this was, I was thinking about the director. I mean, even in a one-person show, it seems to me, even with like the most confident of actors, I would have imma- met, or theater person, I'm not sure if actor is the right word. I'm sorry if I use the wrong word. <laughs> um, I would imagine that there must be some sort of work that is done engaging the director and the I guess like a lighting person yeah, and the absolutely. right I mean absolutely and
2: that's really the work of I mean typically that is the work of the director is to facilitate that okay common direction right so mm-hmm. even if it's a cast or a one-person show you're completely right where we have to ensure that all elements whether that's the performance the design the underscoring and the music that all elements are Telling the same story and working in concert to tell that story.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Oftentimes, if you see a show and you're like, I, "I don't like it," and I don't know why, oftentimes it's because those the lighting design was great, but it didn't feel like it was in the same play mm. as the costume design. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah, and so that can oftentimes be what it is that makes something feel a little disjointed. And That's so again, going back to that idea of a common mission and. Getting everyone on board, right. is um is is really the value of a sense of ensemble.
1: Yeah, I wonder this. You mentioned getting everyone on board. I feel like, and I'm and hopefully in a future episode, I'm going to unpack this a little bit more. But I've often spoken about and talked with people about sort of cultivating belonging when it's I don't want to say easy, but sort of in spaces with like minded people, right? Like it works when it works, and so I'm wondering. What happens when you come across a student or a group of students that are just incredibly nervous and that vulnerability is just like, it's, you know, it's almost paralyzing, right? You know, how do you, um, I mean, do you, I'm going to tell the audience because I can't stand not to, like we were talking about me being nervous and you brought out, of course you brought out a puppet and it broke the ice. And so I'm wondering, like, in addition to sort of signing this contract of sorts that you said, like, yeah. what other things do you do to sort of because let's face it, like being nervous is real. And whether you're in a classroom learning something, it can really be paralyzing.
2: Absolutely. It can. Um, and it's so it's, it's so important for for anyone who's participating in a creative Capacity to feel so and that they yes. can take risks, yes, in order in order to have a positive experience and to collaborate. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh-huh. I think that's key, and I think you know when you're working with young people, of course, that takes the shape of ensemble is something that must be constantly reflected on and cultivated. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of like exercises and mm-hmm. games, they feel like games that yeah. you play with the cast that work toward that. Um, but I think what what is especially like nerdy and interesting about this question is in, in my point of view the best directors are the best teachers and mm. vice versa and it's because that's what educators do naturally and if you want to go back to the literature on it and talk about something like self-efficacy we know from Van Gogh's work on self-efficacy mm-hmm. that you you feel like you've got a strong capacity to do something when you've had success in it mm-hmm. right so in the rehearsal process how do you build in as many moments as possible for that simple mastery? Mm. And then that can come down to the way you structure your rehearsal.
3: What
2: chunk, what size of a chunk of content are they reviewing at a given time? If it's a smaller chunk, they're going to feel more successful. And then you can glue on more chunks as you go. Mm -hmm. So in that way, folks who have the skills of a good teacher have the skills necessary to develop that important sense of ensemble so that that vulnerability paves the way for bravery, Mm, right? Nice,
1: Um, yeah. Yeah, I wonder, we went back to director, which is great because that's where I was going next is, you know, clearly, and again, without the theater expertise, I certainly would assume directors obviously have a unique set of skills, right, that they're learning in school and, and probably on the job too, right? But I'm also wondering, um, are they, are directors doing their own pre-work? Like you can't, I mean, you can't just enter this space and sort of do this with any sort of person if you've not done your own work. So I'm wondering if you could talk about what that looks like when you're on that side. Yeah, for sure.
2: They do, and you know every every director's as a as an artistic discipline. Every director's process is different, mm-hmm. um, and also every project is different. So you know it's very different to put on a revival of a show that's a hundred years old that has had revivals, you know, across the country and the world, mm-hmm. versus working with a playwright on a on a brand new production of mm-hmm. something. Those are two very different things, right? But I think your point about, like, what is that pre-work, especially when you're going to be moving into production and engaging with creative collaborators, mm-hmm. I think everyone has some version of that. Mm. It, it can be um, spending the time to dig into the script and the text to develop your own directorial concept, mm. which is the director's unique vision for the play. Mm-hmm. How am I going to tell this story? What's the sort of conceit, the framework for telling it? Mm-hmm. That's what then. Um, other directors um, oh. will really partner with dramaturgs to do a deep dive into the sort of background and history and research mm. of uh, what the play is based on. Mm-hmm. And we'll spend a lot of time doing that. But anyway, all of this sort of pre-work that happens, typically the director will do before they get into that first room with the cast. Mm. And, then, and again, everyone's process is different, but oftentimes... One of the early moments where you've got the whole company together is what we call table work, right? Which is sitting around a table as a collective, reading the script out loud, painting the picture of the world of the play, talking Mm -hmm. about the direction that it's going to go and sort of getting everybody on board with where it's going. Mm -hmm. That's sort of what happens in the professional theater. Mm -hmm. So the trick in school theater, especially when you're working with younger grades, is how do you do that with <laughs> yeah. you know, 60, 10 years? Yes, that's
1: right. Get them to sit around a table. Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So then the
2: trick becomes making a bit more active or participatory mm. and participatory um, and and use multiple modalities of mm-hmm. learning and expression so that everyone has, again, going back to that
1: small moment of mastery.
2: That's right. So they feel
1: successful. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, I love this conversation for lots of reasons. One, because it's a new world to me, so I love to learn new things. But I also I love um, metaphors. And so for me, this really feels, as with my educator hat on, I feel a lot of connection to the classroom, right? So teacher, director, things of that nature. The thing that I keep going back to, Lisa, that's so striking to me is you mentioned this idea of the director having their own concept and vision, and I know we had talked before in another conversation about, you know, if you have literary figures or directors, you see their style, in, you know, you say, oh, that's a Scorsese film, or yeah. that's Hemingway, or, right, it's yeah. noticeable. And the thing that I keep wondering about is, why do you think in sort of a director role, I mean, it seems to me, maybe it's not true, it seems to me that they have some sort of freedom and autonomy that our teachers maybe don't have to the same degree. And I'm just wondering, what do you think that's about?
2: Yeah, that's a a great question. I think you have an on the head. I think it is about freedom and autonomy and Mm -hmm. the ability to approach your work like you approach a craft or a trade, as opposed to how you approach a task Mm -hmm. or, you know, something like that. So I think I think a lot of it has to do with the structure of education mm. and the expectations and requirements placed on teachers. Mm. Um, you know, I think the um, the various measures of accountability mm-hmm. dictate what you can and can't do in a lot of ways. Um, I also think there is something about this idea of time and process,
3: mm. right?
2: So, so you know, as I kept saying every director approaches this differently. I don't know that in traditional education settings that every teacher has the luxury of mm. approaching it differently. Yeah. They can't say, you know what? I don't want to be with kids on Wednesdays because <laughs> I really want to unleash myself in the social studies. <laughs> they, don't get to, they don't get to do that. Right. right? So the sort of constraints of the structure of schooling, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to
3: time, mm-hmm.
2: I think is, is part of it. And then kind of going back to sort of the disciplinary um, – education literature is is just the idea of like the professionalization of teachers yeah we, do we value teacher voice mm-hmm. in society mm-hmm. we obviously should I think everybody listening to this agrees with that but but how wonderful would it be if there was a canon of master teachers and you you held their pedagogy up as exemplar
1: and went to specialized schools to learn their methodology that's right that's right yeah and just the um this idea of giving teachers also the opportunity to explore those master pedagogies if they existed. Because I think the other thing that I find is that it's not, teachers have the biggest hearts and they care so much about our students and they work so hard. So it's not, it's not for lack of effort and passion. It's sometimes it's even just introduction to a process, right? So like, what does that look like to, to sort of invest in this sort of ideas of belonging, right? Drop my headphones. Yeah, no worries. No worries. <laughs> um I think the other interesting thing and this is why I think it's also so important is um as you were talking about um describing sort of the lighting and the costumes and like bringing that together and like doing a skill. So like that to me that's one part of it, right? Which is also mm-hmm. relevant in the classroom. So it's like doing a math problem, finishing your yeah. worksheet, whatever. But there's like parallel processes going on here, which is all, all all about like, there's a human being at the heart of all of this, right? And we have to attend to their needs, their vulnerabilities, their interests. And so, yeah, I just think it's 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 so interesting and amazing that directors are given the luxury of time and freedom to do that. But I wish we could figure out ways to, I wish we could convince leaders that if we gave teachers the time on the front end, we'd make it up somewhere else. Right. Like, I don't know. Right.
2: Yeah. I, I I mean, everything I keep coming back to in my own interests and research is, is the constraint of time for teachers is huge because their, their expectations and demands don't change and the amount of time that they have to achieve it is um, is sad and then and then things pile on on top of it all yeah so there, there's just no time for yeah. um, cultivation of a creative voice yeah. right when are you supposed to do that after you're done grading papers kind of pops, I know right? right
1: yeah I think there's no time and I think unfortunately in some settings not all settings um, there's also I won't say no trust but there's low trust and there's sure. such a heavy pressure of accountability you know, I would love for a leader to say our test scores are going to be OK. Let's just focus on setting the stage for belonging and everything. And the test scores will follow. That's not how it right. works. Right. It's like right. test scores first, then everything else can follow. Right. And I wish it right. was the reverse. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder
2: what it would take to flip that.
1: I don't know. That's it. When you figure that out you let me know because you're going to be like a gazillionaire if you figure that one out <laughs> and you'll be yeah. wanted everywhere.
2: <laughs> so that's exactly.
1: amazing. So, um, so speaking of time, I know, I know you are a busy woman, um, with lots of kids waiting for you to, to, to bring them to the theater. So I'm gonna, um, I hope you'll come on again. Cause I think, um, this whole metaphor of theater and education I think there's something there so I'd love to sort of talk about other processes of theater and how it might be relevant to belonging in education so um, so yeah so you know Lisa, how much I respect and appreciate your time and your knowledge and I just um, wanted to thank you for coming on and being my first guest and I think I think we're on to something with this idea that um, you know setting the stage, yes is, a physical setting of the stage, but there's also this collective psychological space in which we are setting the stage for our students and for the directors and even the theater goers. Um, so, um, yeah, so Absolutely. thanks thanks so much for, um, I don't know, for, for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. Yep, thanks. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed my first interview with Lisa Mitchell. Um, I feel like as I re-listened to that interview, I continued to think about that last uh, part of the conversation that she and I were having about what is the relationship or the metaphor that we could be using with respect to the sort of, um, I don't know, steps or preparation related to theatrical work the more I've had a chance to get to know and speak to Lisa, the more I recognize that we can learn so much from being around and listening to other people's experiences in their own professions. And what doesn't always seem like an obvious connection or opportunity to learn often presents huge lessons that we can then translate or take into and adapt to our own setting. So I really encourage you to pay attention to you know, the diversity of folks in your worlds and in your spaces and see see what you can learn about, in this case, the pre-work they do in their own settings to, to build those learning cultures and create, um, you know, those spaces where we can really explore and be vulnerable and be our true selves. So, I hope you really enjoyed um, that interview. So in the latter part of the podcast, as is always the case, I wanted to share a research article that I came across as I was preparing for this episode. Um, It's called Impact of Learning Circle Interventions Across Academic and Service Contexts on Developing a Learning Culture. I know it's a mouthful, right? So it's this idea of a learning circle. Um, and how it can contribute to developing what the authors call a learning culture. And this is Walker, Henderson, Cook, and Creedy. And just like the other research that I mentioned in my podcast, as well as my blog, you can find this on my website, what'sourstory.com. And if you go to the resource page, you will find a list of literature that I reference uh, during the podcast. So take a look if you haven't already. That's www.what'sourstory.com. You can check out the literature. You can also listen to episodes of the podcast. And if you haven't had a chance yet, um, please check out the blog that I started probably like three weeks ago now um, and and give me some feedback on on how you're liking that. So so, in terms of the article, um it's really interesting the the researchers talk about this notion that inclusive behavior, so think about my grandmother bringing somebody into the fold of a conversation. So imagine you walk into the door of my grandparents' house when they were still with us. And maybe there were conversations going on. I can assure you that my grandmother would walk right over to you, grab you by the arm, introduce herself, and then make sure you were brought into some conversation. So that inclusive behavior assists learning um, and really can be replicated in a professional context. Uh, These authors also suggest, not surprisingly, that environment matters And, you know, assuming this is the interesting thing I found or one of the interesting things I found in the article, assuming that teachers or clinicians or facilitators are prepared is wrong. It's just incorrect. Um, So just as we've talked, I've talked about in past episodes and have had lots of conversations with colleagues about this idea that we continue to build professional learning for our leaders, facilitators and teachers and we assume that they're prepared to take this on, and perhaps they're not. And so this pr- preparation and ability to do this pre-work is important. And in fact, they, the authors go on to say that the extent to which our leaders and teachers and clinicians are not prepared can lead to deleterious effects. So there could be dissatisfaction and poor outcomes. Um, learning circles, the idea of learning circles is to cultivate mutual respect. So this valuing of each other. And remember that when we talk about, I think a few episodes ago, two episodes ago, when I talked about a disagreement I had with a neighbor, agreement is not always the goal. It's establishing mutual respect, right? It's being able to hear what the other person says and come to some reasonable conclusion and settling of the matter, even if you don't agree. So mutual respect, trust, trying to cultivate positive attitudes and constructive feedback. Um, Interestingly enough, these authors suggest that learning does not rest with, with designated mentors. Rather, learning cultures are premised on a team approach. And so this idea of community over individual, I think, is an interesting one to think about and perhaps can be important. They also suggested that climate is a key predictor of student success, and they really do in this article, as they talk about um, the use of these learning circles, they suggest that climate is something larger than, you know, the space in which you sit. I mean, certainly there's plenty of research on this notion that space matters, so one of the um, most common findings or common discussions it's had, particularly in education circles, is around the formation or organization of um, uh, seats or desks, you know, in a classroom. So imagine the sort of typical rows of desks and the teacher at the front. And folks that that do work on space and the effectiveness of space will will share that to create these more communal and democratic spaces, we need to rethink how that looks. This article agrees with that, but then also suggests climate as a broader term, which is. The feelings, um, you know, the respect, the trust that I just mentioned. So, in this article, this intervention is about this idea that it's it's in the nursing literature. And so the authors are talking about how nurses go into the field, right? They do a field placement. and this could be true of nurses, nurse practitioners, doctors. Um, I mean, even attorneys who do internships, I used to direct a policy program where students would do an internship in the summer. And so what these researchers learned from, from their own experiences, but also speaking to faculty, is that faculty aren't always prepared to sort of manage and handle the learning that happens external to the classroom during these field placements and internships. And what these researchers proposed was an intervention that would implement this idea of a learning circle. And the learning circle was convening a group of faculty and practitioners to talk about and build collaboration around the critical and hard issues that crop up. So this is all to the betterment of student success with respect to training our nurses. Um, But rather than sort of having it be, be an either or or a separate sort of Um, relationship, right, where like the student does the the classroom learning and then goes out to the field and the faculty sort of is unprepared or is hands off. These researchers suggested that learning circles might be a way to build collaboration and discuss these critical issues, the sort of important milestones and learning points um, as a group. So they brought practitioners and faculty together. So again, to deconstruct, to confront and theorize and honestly, to think otherwise, right, to come up with innovation. And what the researchers found is in doing this work, the group was able to identify mutual goals, they had some success developing solutions together, and they were also able to develop and share more innovative practices. The other cool thing that happened is it also motivated, um, I don't know if I'd call it a contagion effect, but I've seen this in the literature. What they suggested is that it also motivated participants within the learning circle to share this information and this approach outside of the learning circle right with team members outside the learning circle so that the benefits and the outcome the success outcomes weren't just experienced by folks that were in the learning circle there was there was sort of um an expansion of these benefits and the expansion of their experiences to other folks who were not in the learning circle. So I think that's something also that we should be thinking about because there is literature that also suggests that students who experience um, communities of belonging and climates of belonging are more likely to go out in the world and want to, um, you know, express and share and build that kind of belonging in in the larger world. So it's kind of interesting. Um, In terms of success factors, again, I mentioned a few of them, but they also noted this idea of there was cooperation from key leaders and team members. There was an openness and willingness to participate. They gained a sense of understanding among the participants. So it wasn't that they were, you know, typically when we have these gaps in knowledge or understanding, we make assumptions about the other party. So that was adjusted and augmented to be more of the reality of the situation. They talked about challenges that each group was having in their own spaces. And, you know, it also offered a way of getting folks together. Um, and this ability that um, they were able to come together, share their concerns, share their successes and sort of, you know, move forward together. So learning circles really does represent one intervention, one way to bring, in this case, you know, it's professionals who who occupy different spaces and play different roles in their students' academic lives. But you can see, hopefully, from my summary of the article, and perhaps if you read the article, that there's also you know, mutual respect, mutual interest, and motivation for students to be successful, and that certainly there is overlap in the work that these different professionals do that would lead to the success of students. So, I think the, the members of these learning circles recognize that the extent to which they could collaborate and work together to figure things out just would benefit sort of on both or in both um, areas of the student success. So, So again, as I as I asked you earlier in the podcast and thinking about learning circles, I'd encourage you to think about how a learning circle might be adapted or adopted in your own space and think about what role (coughs) it might play in your context. So, So I'll be right back in a moment with a few closing words. All right. Thanks for sticking around. This is the last segment of the episode today. So this is Tell Me This, a podcast about belonging. This is episode eight, Setting the Stage, A Theatrical Look at Learning. And in today's episode, I had a chance to share another story about my grandmother and how she was able to to set the stage and establish that stage, if you will, for for she and my family and sort of what that meant and what the implications for for doing that work would be um, while she was here. And, and then as she, as she wasn't anymore. Um, I also had a, a, a lovely conversation with Lisa Mitchell, who was able to share with us sort of what pre-work looks like in other professional contexts. So Lisa talked about establishing group goals, thinking about, you know, calling people by names and when you hit those bumpy points or when when students in theater, for example, seem to lose their way to check into those goals and, and, and review and think about what was the intention of that goal, what did it mean and how can we get back on track and having those check-ins um, and really, I think Lisa really provided some really good examples of why doing that individual work before you start this work, so she talked about, in this case, directors doing their own work, but clearly, I hope you can see clearly that this also applies to leaders and teachers and being able to do this work before they they get into these group uh, situations. Um, I think in this episode I tried to also talk about why it's important in these spaces, certainly to prepare you for difficult conversations or difficult situations, um, having that trust and being able to be vulnerable. Remember the the theme of this podcast is about our own perception of belonging and also cultivating belonging. So the ability to be your true self and be vulnerable is critical to that work and the ability to To carry that out also leads to really powerful, authentic, and deep learning, trying new things. This is totally relevant, obviously, in a theater setting where you are practicing lines, practicing dance choreography. Maybe as the lighting person, you're trying out the effect of a new light. And if you're not willing or able to take those risks, just think about what happens to the production and think about what happens in our classrooms or during a meeting if someone is sitting in the room, sitting on their hands with a new idea swirling around in their brain, but we as facilitators haven't done the work to help them unlock that new idea, Ugh, what a missed opportunity. I would hate to think that's happening in the spaces that I that I occupy. And of course, there are also opportunities that, I, as I mentioned earlier and in my story and Lisa pointed out in one of her examples, that it really does set the stage Um, and creates a potential for smoother conflict resolution. So even if it's just a small disagreement, if it's resolving a debate, um, if it's a hard conversation, um, doing that pre-work can help you to get back on track, can help to guide those conversations and to think about um, the implications of that conflict and how you get not past it, but through it Um, and get on the other side so you can do some really powerful reflection. And the last thing that I talked about with respect to the research was around this idea of learning circles. Certainly the research suggested here that environment matters and assuming that facilitators are prepared and ready to go into these spaces and create these environments is not correct, at least not in all circumstances. And so it's really important that we are doing You know, if we want our facilitators to do this work with members of the audience or members of a team, we have got to provide space and support for facilitators, leaders, teachers, instructors, whomever you are, whatever hat you wear. We have to provide space for those folks to do that work. You cannot ask someone to go into this space and cultivate belonging or even do the pre-work If they haven't had a chance to reflect and do this work themselves. They just just cannot do it or they can't do it well. They'll get frustrated. There'll be missed opportunities. There'll be lots of people sitting on their hands with a good idea swirling around their brain and the facilitator may not know how or have the, the capability of unlocking that good idea. The other thing I love about this article is this notion that climate is a key predictor of student success. I think in my read of the literature and and going to conferences and listening to experts speak, we often want to sort of hang our hats on um, the pedagogy, the intelligence of the student, the family relating or contributing to student success. And of course, all those factors matter. Of course, of course, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that if we ignore the climate, if we don't attend to the climate and be intentional about what that climate is, what it feels like, what it looks like, how people walk through and in that climate, we're missing a huge opportunity to also contribute to student success. And really, it doesn't have to be student success. It could be your team success. If you remember that Google article I shared with you several weeks ago about psychological safety, even in corporate world, in the tech world Um, High-performing teams, that climate in which they're working with their team matters greatly. Um, Whether you have a voice in that space and whether folks in your team are keyed in um, to how you're feeling and what the sort of pulse of that climate is at any given moment. So climate matters a lot to success. So what's our goal for this week? Well, I wasn't really sure what I wanted our goal for the week to be. So I decided to go back to a conversation I had earlier about values. Remember, trying to whittle down your values values from like a list of 10 to one or two. So tell me this. What did you select as your one or two goals? Did you select a goal? I sure hope you did. If you didn't, do it now. Um, if you did select a goal when we first uh, started on this journey with the podcast, are you living that goal if you are, what's it look like? How are you implementing it? How could I measure it? Um, how would you describe it? If you're not living that goal, or you're not living it in the way that you'd like to be living it, what could you change this week to get get you back on track? Um, my goal, well, I think I shared with you, I had I had chosen when I read Dare to Lead by Brené Brown, I had chosen. Authent- authenticity and curiosity. So I've been focusing on on authenticity and I'm trying. I am a work in progress, but I am trying. I am putting my truth out there, also known as this podcast at times. I'm sharing it. I'm reflecting on it. I'm hearing and listening to feedback and asking for be- feedback and making changes and doing a lot, uh, lots and lots of learning. Um, You know, to do this kind of work, we all need to think about how we set the stage. What are the climates of our spaces we enter? Do our climates reflect the values that we've identified and articulated for ourselves and for our groups? And how can we contribute in positive ways to these courageous spaces to practice, exercise, and hone our skills and ability to express and cultivate belonging? We need to stop othering and let people know that they matter and they are valued just for showing up. So this week in your comings and goings, think about that one value. Think about how you're practicing it and think about, is there a way for you to demonstrate to somebody else that they matter? And that they matter not because they accomplished something or said something you agreed with or did something or looked a certain way, but they mattered and they are valued just because they showed up. And if you can find that person, and I'm sure you can, tell them. Tell them you're grateful that they showed up today and you appreciate that they're in your space. All right, everybody, this is Tell Me This. I am Carrie Borkowski, and this was episode eight Setting the Stage A Theatrical Look at Learning. In the coming weeks, I'm hoping to unpack some other topics around belonging, Um, hopefully interview. I have a couple of guests in mind, so be looking for a couple of new interviews to hit the podcast. Um, In the meantime, if you have any feedback, have any ideas for future episodes, please be sure to reach out. I can be reached at... Uh, Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y Borkowski B-O-R-K-O-S-K-I at gmail.com. Also, be sure to check out my new website, whatsourstory.com, where you can find articles and other resources on belonging. If you don't have a space to listen to your podcast, you can certainly listen from my website, although it's available on iTunes, Stitcher, um, and many, many other uh, pages. And the other thing is, don't forget that every Thursday morning, I drop a blog post from that website, whatsourstory.com, so be sure to check it out. All right, hope everybody has a terrific week.
0: Do you want to simplify your school's technology?